This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're listening to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. Welcome to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. With me today is Alex Spear, his 14th year of covering the Red Sox and his first for the Boston Globe. Alex, thanks so much for taking some time with us. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me on. You know, the Red Sox, they've been counted out by so many people early on in the season because they got off to just an atrocious start. And they're still five games under 500, last place in the AL East. But they've won seven to nine games, and they're only five games out of first place. Tell me about the feeling in Boston. Are the fans done with the season, or do they still think there's hope for them to come back and get in this thing? Uh, no, I, I think that there's, uh, there's this kind of unexpected feeling that, uh, that, they, that they do, in fact, have some hope. Um, the, the fact of the matter is they're in the American League East, which... Uh, it looked like the AL East was better than we expected for a little while throughout much of the month of June. Uh, the rest of the division was really creating separation between itself and the Red Sox. It, you know, the Red Sox were just kind of lonely in the, uh, lonely in the back of the pack. Um, but the rest of the division has now played itself down to the point where, you know, with the Red Sox now within five games of first place um, and, uh, and starting to win games in a very different fashion than they have been able to all year, namely coming with some late innings comebacks uh, against bullpens, there's a growing sense of, uh, of you know, that the preseason projections of the lineup weren't too far off from what, you know, from what it actually is. Uh, the preseason expectations for Buckholz may have been light, or at least they are for this run that he's currently on. Um, the, the, the absence of, uh, uh, of preseason expectations for Eduardo Rodriguez, you know, his emergence is, uh, has been significant in a rotation that didn't really have um, have definitive frontline talent entering the year. Um, so I, I think that there are a number of components that suggest Red Sox have, uh, have, some, have, a, have a little bit of possibility in front of them in terms of making up some ground in the ALE. You know, one of the guys I think that's really fueled this recent run has been David Ortiz. And, you know, he got off to a really terrible start, just like the rest of the team. And I can't tell you how many articles I read just writing him off saying he's old, his time has passed, it's time to cut ties. Uh, and in the second week of June, you and I both wrote very similar articles, which is that, well, his numbers look terrible, but his exit velocity is great. He's really hammering the ball hard. Give him some time, he's going to come out of it. Over the last month, he's got a 373 on base percentage, a 516 slugging percentage. Do you think the balls are just finding holes, or do you think it's that we are both just really great prognosticators and saw this coming? <laughs> you know, I'm still trying to make sense of some of the exit velocity stuff because I do like always find it really interesting when we have incomplete outcomes. With regards to the number of you know the number of balls that have been put in play, but it is a useful phenomenon in terms of just figuring out how many how many times is this guy hitting you know hitting a ball 100 miles an hour and having it be coming out or 105 miles an hour and having it be coming out. Um, and you know with with Ortiz, it did seem as if there was some bad luck in play. There also seemed to be a lot of weirdness with regards to some of his other stats. I mean, the exit velocity says there's bat speed, right? The fact that the top end of that exit velocity. Uh, you know, existed, the fact that he could solidly connect with the 95-mile-an-hour fastball and drive it 400-plus feet, that, that's not something that everyone can do. And so it means that even if he's aging and in a state of decline, like, there should still be that possibility for the three, the, the three true outcomes 
type of veteran that you sometimes see as players um, end up in the, late, in the later stages of their careers. And then, um, and then you're, you're correct. He's, been, he's actually been in a number of favorable hitters parts, which I think has perhaps played into the fact that some of those balls have found holes. Playing some games in Toronto is always going to help uh, your Babbitt, as is uh, as is playing a lot of games at Fenway, where he's uh, you know he's been a very different hitter this year. I think he's walking just about twice as often as he's striking out of Fenway, um, with a very different ratio in, in road parks. So um, there are a number of factors in play, but uh, I, I think that it was the case that you know that exit velocity helped to define the fact that rumors of his demise may have been premature. And I think the exit velocity tells an interesting story, uh, not just about you know whether Ortiz is done, but whether a player is healthy. And I know you wrote a little bit about Hanley Ramirez. He had a great first uh, month of the season and then hurt his shoulder running to the wall, struggled for the next couple of weeks, and then really came back up until he got that unfortunate ball in the hand. And the exit velocity tracked with that pretty well. Is that something that you think you'd find useful going forward to kind of track uh, hitter health, almost the same way you might do pitcher health? Absolutely. I think that we're looking for objective markers that indicate whether or not a guy is himself. And if... You know, if you have Hanley Ramirez once every two or three days capable of hitting a ball 100-plus miles an hour or 105 or 110, and then he's going a month, you know, with only kind of a handful of those kinds of, uh, those kinds of hits, you know, between that and the spray chart data that tells you that he's not pulling the ball at all, it tells a pretty compelling story about a hitter who is physically not, who's either physically or mechanically not himself, and oftentimes the physical is going to be dictating the mechanical alteration um, but, of course, with Hanley, it's also been noteworthy that in the last roughly month-plus, he's started having that same, kind of, uh, that same kind of explosive contact of the barrel and the bat. And you can see it in exit velocity. You can also see it in the outcomes and, the, and, the, you know, and just the slash stats over the course of uh, the last five weeks or so. Now, flipping over to the other side of the ball, do you think Hanley Ramirez ever plays left field for the Red Sox after this season? Yeah, I do. I, I think that he's actually getting. Uh, I think that he's actually getting better. I do. Uh, you know, I I'm I have not been able to find kind of uh, kind of route efficiency information that is broken down by time period. Um, I would very much like to, uh, but if if we did, I have a feeling that Hanley Ramirez would have uh, would look like someone who's making improvements in terms of uh, in terms of the number of balls that he's getting to in the kinds of routes that he's running, the amount of ground that he's covering um, on fly balls. And, uh, you know, I, I think that there is a learning curve. I think that it, it's ultimately proving to be, you know, a kind of more gradual learning curve than the Red Sox had hoped for or anticipated. But uh, it, it exists, and I think he's getting better out there. And, uh, you know, if he's, if he's busting out, you know, if he's busting out an average, let's say, if he's a 35 home run hitter, then the bat will let him play in a number of positions. Well, the good news is that what you just asked for about breaking down route efficiency by time, that actually does exist. It's not quite public yet, but the information is being tracked. Uh, and it's actually a fantastic idea and one I might steal from you going forward. But I'll give you credit for that. <laughs> um, so I have to put you on the spot. It's the question every Red Sox fan wants to know. What's wrong with Rick Porcello? He, uh, he's not really uh, losing velocity on his fastball, a little bit on his curve, but his ground ball percentage has dropped 12% in the last two years. And for a guy like that, he lives on ground balls. What's going on with him? And you know, is this contract going to be salvageable? It's a, it's a great question, and it's a, really, you know, it's a really puzzling development because you're right. Physically, he looks like he should be at the peak, you know, at the, at the peak uh, physical well-being of his career. The, the Red Sox say that there's no injury to go into that. Um, there has been confusion, I think, in terms of uh, pitch sequencing and, and usage. There have been some pretty extreme shifts in terms of how often he's used his four-seamer versus his two-seamer. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that 
he's someone who's tried to expand and expand and expand his repertoire over the course of a number of years. Um, and, you know, in that, you know, sometimes there have been times when Clay Buckles has dealt with this a, a little bit as well. Um, just, you know, having, uh, you know, have a jack of many trades and master of none, maybe. Um, that, that's kind of what it feels like Porcello is doing right now. But, um, you know, I, I do think that things like, you know, things like spin rate on his, uh, his two-seamer have to be, you know, very prominent in terms of the Red Sox concerns, you know, making sure that he is getting a low enough spin rate to be able to get that ground ball con- uh, contact that they're so desperate for in that two-seam fastball that made him a really effective pitcher for a number of years with Detroit. So you just talked very intelligently about spin rate and about exit velocity, uh, and you're probably the first writer in the Boston Globe's history to, to, to use these terms, right? And so I, I'm interested to know, what's there been the reaction in Boston to people seeing this? Has it been favorable? Has it been a little bit against, no, this is too much, I want to go back? Uh, how are your readers reacting to this? Um, I, I think that it's, you know, it, it's a case-by-case situation. I think that intuitively, exit velocity makes just a ton of sense. Um, you know, we've, you, you can see a guy hitting a ball really, really hard, and you don't need a lot of explanation. You know, once you know that, once you know, oh, not many people hit a ball 110 miles an hour, if you can say, hey, he hit that ball 110 miles an hour, then that's really valuable in the same way that, you know, the velocity of pitches can be really valuable in, in a real vacuum. So, uh, that part is intuitively easy to get, um, and you know, and then beyond that, it becomes slightly more. You know, there's you you have to you have to bring the audience with you. If you're interested in using this stuff, then you have to you have to make sure that you're mindful of the fact that not everyone who's reading it is going to know uh, is going to know what spin rate does. But uh, so it's it's up to you to explain it, um, and then to explain why it matters and explain how it's playing out with an individual pitcher. But if you can use it to illustrate something that is so confounding, like why Koji Uehara with an 88-mile-an-hour fastball is capable of getting a bazillion swings and misses, you know, if you can explain that he has just an insane spin rate that allows his ball to have that, his fastball to have that, like, mysterious carry through the strike zone, then it starts to connect with people in a way that it broadens the dialogue and the, and the, number, of, the number of elements that they can take into account in observing a game. You know, and I think you did a good job of that in a short piece you had last night. I mean, obviously, a lot of the math that goes into this is very, very complicated, but the ideas really aren't. And so last night, you wrote about how Carter Capps had the 105.5 mile an hour perceived velocity, uh, which is insane if you really think about it, because no one throws that hard. But because he's got such extension off the mound, it looks like he throws that hard. Obviously, it didn't work out for him because, you know, Xander Bogart's got the game-winning hit. But I really think that that's something that people can understand. Like, oh, it's not actually 60 feet, 6 inches for this guy. It's maybe 51 feet and however many inches off the mound. And I think that's the kind of thing that people can really understand, even if it's maybe a little difficult to understand all the radar and technology that goes into that, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and it helps to explain some things that we've just taken as, like, as, you know, as kind of baseball truisms over the years. And it helps to explain why they've become kind of accepted conventional wisdom. Why is it that a tall pitcher is, you know, it, why, why is it that in some cases, like, a tall pitcher is a more desirable commodity than a short one? Well, if you have a guy whose extension of coming off the mound is bringing the ball, you know, two feet closer to the plate uh, at 90 miles an hour than someone, uh, than, than a shorter guy who's also throwing 90 miles an hour, that's a heck of a difference in terms of how long it takes to get on the hitter. So, um, you know, it, it helps us to understand how deception works and how, uh, how battery reactions work and, and there's, you know, there, there's just there's a richness to it, and it just has to be explained and discussed in the right way. 
Let's just briefly touch on Clay Buckholt, who's probably the opposite of Rick Porcello in that he's having arguably his best year, and he starts against the Yankees on Friday night in the MLB Network Showcase. Uh, as I don't need to tell you, certainly, his last four years have been insane. He's had two very, very good ones, and he's had two disaster ones, uh, and he's kind of gone from being someone the Red Sox might have been happy to let go to someone they're probably going to keep because his next two club options are, are pretty reasonable, $13 you know, million a year. Uh, and it's interesting to see like what's changed for him. He's got his lowest walk rate ever. He's got a higher strikeout rate ever. He's got one of the highest spin rates on his cutter. Like, What have you seen from Buckholz that's really made this year such a good year for him? Well, first of all, I would dispute the question of that they would uh, the the idea that they were ready to just kind of give up on him. They know what he's capable of, and so you know, and knowing that it's affordable, knowing that thirteen million dollars is really number four and number five starter money, uh, I don't think that there was ever kind of going to be that conversation um, about giving up on him. But uh, in terms of uh, in terms of execution, the cutter has been a really good pitch for him. It, it, you're you're right. The, the spin rate on it has made it you know has made it that much more of a, a lateral weapon. Uh, than it's been in the past. You know, it has that much more movement to get even further off of the barrel of the bats and, you know, probably in some more swings and misses probably than he's been getting with it in the past, which might contribute to that uh, to that career-high strikeout rate that he's, uh, that he's performing at. Um, and really what it is, I mean, what it comes down to is, you know, forget about the spin rate, forget about, you know, uh, it's really just uh, the, the mastery right now of four to five pitches they can move in all different directions and the ability to command it, to command them to very specific parts of the strike zone. Once you're able to do that, it's kind of game over because then you can attack righties, you can attack lefties. And when Buckholz, when Buckholz has that, and, you know, I mean, shoot, there are, when anyone has that kind of diversity of arsenal and confidence in it, then they start pitching with such ease on the mound. You know, they, you start to see, you know, just it's, it becomes – they they are able to approach pitching as as an art and one that they understand and can control. And you know, Buckles is Buckles is in that zone right now. He's been uh, he's he's been really pitching as well as I've ever seen him throw. Alex, final question, and it's an easy one. It's a true or false question. On opening day, 2016, Hanley Ramirez, David Ortiz, and Pablo Sandoval will all be on the Red Sox and all in the opening day lineup. True or false? Uh, true. True. I agree with you. I can't see them moving Sandoval or, or Ramirez, even if they wanted to. It's just, it's just not going to happen. The only question is who plays first base, I, yeah, and one of the, whether or not one of those guys is it, or whether or not they're uh, whether or not the solution is is drawn from elsewhere. But it's probably not going to be Mike Napoli. No, I think that uh, I, I mean, quite honestly, it'll be interesting to see whether or not Napoli makes it to the end of uh, to the end of this month with the Red Sox, given that they're, they they have some players such as Brock Holt. And Alejandro Deaza, who are playing really, really well and need regular playing time, and uh, you know, it's it's becoming challenging to find some at bats for Mike Napoli. He's, you know, he's now sitting for his uh, for the fourth straight day. Um, so that that's becoming an interesting question. Great stuff, Alex Spear, Boston Globe. Thanks so much for your time. Joining us now on the MLB.com Statcast podcast, Ted Berg. Since 2013, he's been writing at USA Today's For the Win. He's the host of the Walk Off podcast, and I think he's probably the future CEO of Taco Bell. Ted, how are you? Doing well, Mike. How about you? Doing great. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Ted. I have to let you know, you uh, like four or five years ago, I think, when you were still at SNY, the home of the Mets, you were, I believe, the first person to ever have me on TV, and even though it was only internet TV. Uh, it was still the first time, and I've always appreciated that. So I wanted to say thank well, you. Well, I'm 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 proud proud to have helped you get your start. Well, <laughs> uh, toward marching toward the Statcast podcast. You, well, you also uh, like two years ago helped me find my way around City Field when I was totally lost in the way to the clubhouse. So uh, you've been nothing but an assistance. 
I don't even remember that, but that sounds like <laughs> something I might have done. You know, it's, it's kind of nerve-wracking. The first time, if you go out with a credential for the first time, you have no idea where to go. I still remember the first time I, I went to Shea Stadium, I opened the door to the Mets Clubhouse, I saw a stark naked baseball player, and I just closed the door because I thought I wasn't supposed to be in there, but apparently you can be. Yeah, and it, it's not easy to find. You start up in the press box, and it's like, okay, go down seven levels and find your way, and it's, it's pretty confusing. <laughs> Yeah, it can definitely be overwhelming. So, listen, a couple months ago, or I guess in early May at For the Win, you wrote an article about StatCast and the headline, and I know you may not have written the headline yourself, but it says, it'll change the way you watch baseball. And then you went into great detail about exactly how it would change the way you watch baseball. So the question before you is, in the last couple months, has it changed the way you've watched baseball? Uh, a little bit. I think it will more. Um, you know, we just got the announcement that, that we're going to see the leaderboard soon, and I think that'll help. Uh, knowing numbers like like route efficiency and and exit velocity even without a ton of context definitely does change it a little bit like when you can see uh okay well that guy was 98.8 percent efficient on his route to that ball and, and and appreciate uh how precise that is and and how difficult it is um it i had no doubt that baseball players were extremely good at, at playing baseball but i think it it gives even a little more context to just like how in, in spectacularly awesome they are. <laughs> yeah. Well, I like also that there's new ways to, to say how awesome they are. Like it's always been, well, this pitcher's awesome because he throws 98 miles an hour. And now it might be this pitcher's awesome because his spin rate is nearly 3,000 RPM or his spin rate is particularly low. And those are things maybe intuitively we knew just by watching, but we never actually been able to put numbers to it until now. Uh, and I think it's interesting because we're seeing teams actually do this. And we know that's why Colin McHugh's with the Astros. You know, we know that's why the Mets chose Lucas Duda over Ike Davis because of things like spin rate and exit velocity. Uh, and I, I think that's something that's really going to be useful for everyone going forward. Yeah, I mean, uh, just today we saw the leaderboards with, uh, with John Carlos Stanton, uh, which, again, not, not terribly surprising for the eye test. But just how much harder he hits the ball than everyone else is phenomenal. It's like uh, it's like I, I said, and I just wrote it up. He's basically he is to hitting what Araldis Chapman is to throwing, uh, and and yeah, it's cool to to see that context. And it, it definitely um, I think something that is going to help us know so much more uh, once all of the data is out there and and people start manipulating it. Uh, I think we're going to have a much better understanding about the value of defense. I think that's obviously the big one. Uh, we've relied for so long on these stats like defensive run saves and, and UZR, which are good ones uh, and the best we have. But I think you know, using the the more granular data and the more precise data is just going to make those stats so much more reliable. When you wrote about this, uh, you talked about last year in the World Series a little bit, and you hit on a really big pet peeve of mine. Uh, you wrote that Eric Hosmer probably cost himself a base sliding head first, and you were able to show that based on the, the numbers and the top speed and all that. Is this finally how we kill head first sliding? Like, can we actually use these numbers just to get this out of the game entirely? You'd, you'd think so, you know, and, and, uh, and you might say, well, okay, we'll try explaining that to the players. Uh, but now, you know what, three, four years after teams started implementing shifts, and there's a lot of blowback to the shifts at first, not baseball, this is a new thing. Now most players you talk to, get it they've seen the information they, it's it's pretty easy to pick up right if you can say okay this guy's going to hit the ball on the left side of the infield 70 percent of the time so we want more guys over there uh that makes sense it's not it's you know baseball players can be creatures of habit and they can be slow to change but they're certainly not idiots and i think once you can show guys 
you know, those, those precise stopwatch figures, this is how much faster you'd have gotten there if you didn't dive head first. You would have been safe. You would have had an extra base hit if you didn't dive head first. Yeah. Uh, maybe that is what, what kills the head first dive into first. So you're in locker rooms uh, pretty regularly. How do you identify a guy that you can go up to and say, here's something and here's the numbers to back it up and hope that you'll get a positive reaction to it and not get laughed out of the locker room? I know there's been some horror stories of really old school guys who just aren't interested. And then obviously we know about some guys like Brandon McCarthy and AJ Ellis and that type who are really into that. That's got to be one of the most nerve-wracking things for you going up to a player maybe who you don't know very well. Yeah, you know, I I, uh, I do my best to try to warm up with easy questions, you know, and, and see if you can gently guide a guy towards talking about his stats or if you bring up a, a stat and, and, you know, present it to him and see what he says. And, uh, yeah, like you said, some guys are, are real open to it and, and uh, real interested in, in learning. And, and other guys, uh, I think, maybe don't even really want to think about it that much. Everybody will tell you they don't look at their own stats. Uh, I think that's probably true less than half of the time. I think most baseball players can tell you their batting average at any given point, but uh, I do believe there are some guys who, who would rather ignore it entirely and, and just do their best to play every day. Uh, but, yeah, you can find, you know, you can, I usually do a little bit of research beforehand and, and try to find if I can dig up interesting quotes from different guys. Okay, this guy might be a, a good talker, or some, someone with, with something I haven't heard before to say, uh, a lot of guys will sort of, uh, and, and I understand it, but a lot of guys will sort of uh, be a little bit timid about stepping too far outside the norm in a conversation. So uh, you have to get a guy who's confident. And, and you can kind of pick that up really from the first question you ask a guy if he's going to uh, open up and, and, and explain some interesting things. Let's take a quick trip together to Panic City. Uh, and I am, of course, talking about the state of Mets fans right now about that offense. Last week, I wrote that Curtis Granderson is having one of his best seasons. And to illustrate that, I used weighted runs created plus. And it's true. He's actually above his career average. He's above some of his better home run seasons. And Mets fans did not take that well, to put it lightly, because they see the limited home run total, the limited RBI total, uh, and they just don't think he's worth the money. What's your take on that? Is Curtis Granderson having a good season? Has that contract worked out? Are you happy with him there? Yeah, I think a lot of people have not adjusted their own standards for the new offensive standards, and that's probably the case with Granderson. Uh, you know, you look at the batting average, and it's not great. It's not really his game. Uh, he's been walking a lot, uh, and and a lot of that, I think, was, was something he did consciously. They put him in the leadoff spot at the, at the beginning of the season, and, and he just started getting on base a ton, which is really your job if you're hitting leadoff. Uh, and yeah, I think that for as bad as that contract looked at, at times last season, uh, if you get this production out of Granderson, uh, that's that's great. You know, I, I think another part of it is that uh, people have to adjust their standards for 15 million a year. It's it's not what it used to be. The, there's so much more money in the game. Maybe not necessarily for the Mets, but but for most teams, for the value of player and the, and the the amount you pay uh, for for a win or for a win above replacement. Uh, Granderson at, at 15 million seems totally reasonable if he plays like he has this year. Yeah, and I couldn't agree with, agree with you more about the money. I mean, I know $60 million over four years sounds like a lot, but in today's game, it's really not that much when you see what the other guys around him are getting. And he, he's not being paid to be a superstar, I guess, is, is the thing. And if he's if the expectations are that he's going to be one, then I think it's less about him uh, and maybe more about the expectations of the people who are who are watching him. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and, and I think uh, with the Mets right now in their offense, 
you could say basically anything and people would react negatively. Uh, it's not Granderson's fault that the Mets can't hit. It's basically everybody else on the Mets' fault that the Mets can't hit. Uh, but it's, you know, people blame Ted Williams when the Red Sox didn't score runs. Those focal point guys are, are always going to be the ones who, who get sort of highlighted and blamed, and, and it's almost never their fault. Uh, it's just uh, almost a classic case of, of well, you're, you, this guy's not good enough. When, when meanwhile, he's fine. It's, it's everybody else who's not good enough, and it's, it's the rest of the lineup that's, that's not really doing it there. So what, what do they do? I know everybody wants Todd Frazier, and that's not going to happen. Everybody wants Troy Tulowitzki, and that's probably not going to happen either. What, what's the fix for the Mets on offense? Uh, it's a tough call. I mean, it just it depends so much on on how much they're willing to give up. Uh, teams work with so much information about guys, especially guys like like the Mets young pitchers that that you almost wonder, you know, if they've got a, a guy they'd prefer to trade, if they've got a an injury red flag, anything like that 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 might uh, tip their hand a little bit. Uh, it's 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 like you said. People want Todd Frazier. People want Troy Tulitsky. Every team would want those guys. And so for the Mets, they haven't really shown a lot of willingness to give up their young players. You know, Alderson has done such a good job rebuilding the Mets' farm system, uh, really just added so much depth, added all of the or, – or developed or added a bunch of the young pitchers and now paying dividends in the major league. Uh, but what they haven't really done is, is brought in stars. They brought in Granderson, like we talked about, Seems to be working out. Kadire didn't work out. Uh, they need a big bat. They need a big bat. Lucas Duda had been good. He looks like he's a he's a reasonable major league hitter, but uh, I don't know that he's that that number three center of the offense guy. David Wright is, but he's uh, you know who knows how long he's out for. Uh, I don't know what the move is for the Mets. People are talking about Ben Zobris, but again. Who wouldn't want Ben Zobrist? And then it then it becomes a, a bidding war situation. And and I think if if you told a Mets fan uh, demanding Ben Zobrist what the price for Ben Zobrist is going to be, uh, he'd probably balk at it. You know, teams are getting smarter to uh, the value of of young pitching and and the the uh, the difficulties involved with with building around around young pitching. And I think that does sort of hurt those guys' trade value. Uh, and I and I'm not sure that the Mets have a guy. Uh, if you look at the the likes of of Harvey and Degrom and Syndergaard and and Matt, uh, if you're a Mets fan, do do you want to give up any of those guys, or do you want to just hang on to all of them and, and hope they pay off? Well, since you mentioned the young pitchers, like there's five young pitchers, right? Matt, Harvey, Degrom, Wheeler, who's hurt, of course, and Syndergaard. Of those five, I want you to give me one name who, uh, from here on out, is going to be a superstar. One who's going to be a total bust, and one who's not going to be a Met a year from now. Oh, um, I mean, I think DeGrom's already a superstar. Uh, and, and this is a very easy time to say that because he just threw eight brilliant innings against the Giants. Uh, but the, a guy who surprised everybody, a non-prospect, a, a college shortstop converted to a pitcher and then immediately shut down for Tommy John and really not terribly good in the minors. But since he's been in the majors, he's pitched like a superstar. Uh, so that's the guy there, and that surprises me. I probably would have said it would be Harvey. Uh, and Harvey uh, is coming back from Tommy John. I, I mean, it seems crazy to guess that it would be. I can't, I can't imagine them trading Harvey, um, but it, it almost kind of makes sense, only in that he's a little further along in his contract. 
he's a Boris guy. It sure sounds like he t- intends to test free agency. They might have better luck trying to lock up some of the other guys younger. So if they're looking to trade one, I think that makes a surprising amount of sense. Uh, you know, it would help if he had a couple nice starts. He's been he's been atypically wild lately, and he's he's blaming the six man rotation. And, and people are talking about you know the dead arm phase and recovery. Uh, but uh, you know, I don't know I don't know that they'll do it. But if if they had to trade one, that again, Harvey might be a guy to go. Uh, or a guy they think about it more more than they would last year at this time for sure. Uh, for bust, you know, I, I hate to to stick that on on anyone young. Uh, Wheeler, I think, was a guy that that got a ton a ton of attention for how hard he threw. Uh, hasn't yet shown he can uh, have that type of top end control that the rest of the rest of the Mets guys have. Um, so he'd probably be the guy I would say would disappoint there. And and you know. Memory is always a, a finicky thing, so you always remember the what have you done for me lately, guys. And I agree with you. It's tough to look at these young, talented guys and say anybody's not going to work out, but I'm pretty sure I can count on zero fingers the amount of times a group of five young pitchers have all succeeded and stayed healthy. I mean, it's, oh, it's it not just gonna doesn't happen. happen. It's not going to happen. You know, there's someone, someone will blow up, someone's arm will blow up, and someone will turn out to be not that good. Uh, it's just a tough thing to try to guess when they all look so good at such a young age. I have a two-part question for you here. One is that you, by your own admission on the internet, have recently eaten something called the Taco Bell Captain Crunch Delight, which I assume is some kind of taco mixed with breakfast food, uh, and you survived to tell about it. And that's the first part of the question. And the second part of the question is, how? what what metrics should we add to StatCast to measure whatever was in that piece of food? Huh. Um, I think you would want, like, if you were going for advanced Taco Bell metrics, you would definitely look for uh, something to measure, like diversity and textures, which I think is pretty important and probably an underrated part of the Taco Bell experience. Uh, it's why I'm a big fan of the crunchy red strips, which they will occasionally include in, in new items. Uh, they're basically just red tortillas that they throw in stuff that's not crunchy enough. Uh, and I think will a far above replacement Taco Bell ingredient. Uh, the Captain Crunch Delights, uh, for that matter, I think would have a, a pretty solid score if you're if you're judging the the diversity of textures and that they're pretty crunchy on the outside and and, and nice and soft and warm on the inside. They're not a, a hybrid Captain Crunch taco. They're just uh, they're basically like rolled up dough, I think coated in crunch berries, uh, stuffed with some sort of cream goo filling and fried. Ted, I'm, I'm so uh, impressed right now. I wrote about it. There, you would never want more than two. I'm so impressed right now. I asked you the most ludicrous question in the world, and you actually gave like you know 90 seconds of a really well thought out, intelligent answer. Uh, I spend way too much time <laughs> thinking about Taco Bell, so I've got my Taco uh, Taco Bell analysis. I'm on. Uh, yeah, I think the only me- uh, metric I would eat when I have Taco Bell is the spin rate of my stomach, because uh, we're not friends with that. <laughs> Uh, I mean, you know, you know the, the real, the obvious metrics, I think, you know, I, I always think about it with food as like uh, calories per dollar and protein per dollar, like which foods make your money go the furthest. Um, I think that could come into play with, with Taco Bell. You know, like what is the, the biggest amount of Taco Bell food you could get for the least? <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would check that leaderboard. 
Fair enough. Ted, thanks so much for your time. Ted Berg of USA Today's For the Win. Follow him at OG Ted Berg for everything baseball, hilarity, sandwiches, and tacos. Ted, thanks so much. Mike, thanks for having me. This has been the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. I'm Mike Petriello. Catch you next time. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.